As Doug had just announced uh, regarding the book, it, it is really nice that he talked about a story because I kind of want to talk about a story as well, but not in a parable sense, but in a true story of a young man, uh, not even 34 years of age, who was sent out on a voyage back in 1736. In January of 1736, the Anglican church there in England sent a young man all the way from England to Savannah, Georgia, in order not only to reach the gospel for those who were colonizing here in America, but also he, his heart cry was to bring the gospel forth to the indigenous Americans who were already here in the land. Uh, and so the Native Americans that were here, his heart's cry was to share the gospel with them. But there was an issue. This man was very zealous uh, for good works, zealous for righteousness, and in his heart he wanted to share that truth, and he had even started a club called the Holy Club. Uh, that club that he had started alongside his brother would be dedicated not only to making sure they understood doctrine and philosophy and science, but also that they would understand how to walk and live in a holy life. But even with all of that being sent out by the Church of England, even with being and given this ministry as an ordained minister, he himself, when the rubber met the road and the dangers of shipwreck were upon him, he himself now had to be, I mean, honestly, he had to come together and say, do I really believe all these things that, is, that are going on? Do I believe everything that the Bible teaches? And one of the things that happened was on his journey from America to Savannah, Georgia, there began a, what looked like it was going to be a shipwreck. And here's what he wrote inside of his journal. He said, the winds roared about us. The ship not only rocked to and fro with the utmost violence, but shook and jarred with so unequal grating motion that one could not, but with great difficulty, keep one hold of anything, nor stand a moment without it. Every ten minutes came a shock against the stern or the side of the ship, which one would think would dash the planks in pieces. Fearing that he was to die, he was honestly scared in his own heart, but there was a group of what were known as the Moravians. They were a German group of what we had called, and actually they established as, what is known as the Proto-Protestants, the ones that came before, not because the Moravians, but because they followed the teaching of a man named Jan Haas. And Jan Haas was somebody who was condemned by the Church of Rome, and yet he stood up against them with fervency uh, and really was uh, the incipient, uh, just as we call incipient Gnosticism, the Gnosticism that came to form uh, the actual full form of Gnosticism. This was the incipient uh, early form of what would be the Protestant Reformation, which we just celebrated uh, really the starting of on October 31st of this year. But these Moravians that were on the ship with him, he was so perplexed by them. He had actually on the ship taught the Moravians. He had even taught their chapel services and so forth. But yet, when he thought he was about to die, terror was upon him. And this is what he wrote about the Moravians that were far different from his own heart. He said, in the midst of the psalm, 
When their service began, the sea broke over and split the main sail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among all of the English, but the Germans calmly sang on. I asked them one afterwards, I asked one of them afterwards, I said, why were you not afraid? And he answered, oh, I thank God that I was not afraid. And I asked, but were not there women and children? Were they not afraid? And he, re he replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. And you see, when it comes to death, when it comes to death for each and every one of us, that recognition, that is really the difference between the believer and the non-believer, if we get down to it. Understanding that we no longer have a fear of death. This is how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You see, for those who do not have the hope in Christ, recognizing that their sins have been bought and paid for, for them, there are only really two options. The constant fear of death or the 2,000-pound elephant that is in the room that you're denying exists. In fact, one of the things that we can learn in history is that people over and over again, they put their money where their mouth ultimately is. And so when you look at Silicon Valley, when you look at the richest people that we have ever seen in modern times, over and over again, what you find is they have what they really believe are these eternal projects that they are trying to do. They're trying to live longer. They are trying to figure out how to get their brain. I'm not exaggerating. They're spending millions upon millions of dollars to do this. They're trying to figure out how to get their brain inside of a computer so that they can live on. Others have done things like Albert Einstein says, you know what? We live on through our children. That's how we end up living on. Or others say, I got to finish this book so that I can have a legacy that can live on after me. But for us, the truth be told, if you are in Christ and you love Christ and you know Christ, the truth is, is that for us, we should be here recognizing that this is the one life we live. And this one life that we live, just as the great C.T. Studd in his wonderful poem, Only One Life, said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life is burned out for thee. And ultimately, when we look at death over and over again in the scriptures, we recognize that death is the enemy. Over and over again, we see that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says exactly what will happen to death. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjugation under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjugation, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjugation to him. And 1 Corinthians 15 is in the context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only is it in the context of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in this very context, the fact that there is an afterlife, all of that is placed on the weight of the truth of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that he did what he said. So when we look at 
the entire argument for the afterlife, all of it stems back to the fact that Jesus died a public death on a walkway into Jerusalem before many people, not some hidden thing where he talked to somebody in a cave or he was squeezed by an angel and thought he was demon-possessed. And ultimately, when he came to his wife, Khadijah, she told him, no, it must be God. He must be actually the angel Jibreel. And that's how the entire religion of Islam started. But no, 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 when it came to Christianity, these were public declarations, not only his public death, but his public resurrection. And when we look at 1 Corinthians, when it says our last enemy death is going to be put away, that is all stemming from the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And Paul, what he does in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, if this didn't happen, if this event, the resurrection didn't happen, then my preaching is useless. Your faith is useless We might as well live and drink for tomorrow we die. But the argument is made very clearly. This wasn't something done in secret. This is something that Jesus proclaimed the victory. And when he writes to the church there in Corinth, he says most of them were still alive when he was writing this letter to them. And he says over 500 or 500 of you were alive and saw the risen Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus, the same one who died publicly, raise again publicly. And in Revelation, when we get to see the end of death, it says in Revelation 20, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Because death will be done away with. The final enemy is done away with death. And Jesus says that there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. And I look forward to that day. But the message I wanted to give today is about the double-edged sword, the nature of the fact that God is doing away with death eventually, is that there are two sides to that coin. There is a side that for those who are in Christ, we can look forward to that day. In fact, that's what the Bible describes in 1 Thessalonians, and then Paul talks about it again in Ephesians chapter 6, as the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is our assurance of salvation. The helmet of salvation is the recognition that one day Jesus is coming back for his bride. The helmet of salvation is the recognition that we follow a culminating faith, not circular, not something that is cyclical, that we wait and watch for the winter solstice and wonder what's going on with astrology. I follow not astrology, but the one who made the stars. I follow the one over and over again who is culminating my faith so that when I am trusting in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, I am trusting also that he will make all things new. I am trusting also that not only did he die, not only did he resurrect, but that he's coming again. And I get to have full assurance of that because of the resurrection. And so I want to talk about that assurance today for us as believers. And what's interesting is the Bible actually tells us that we are commanded to have assurance of our our salvation. The Bible commands us that we are to make our calling and election sure, that we are not supposed to guess and simply hope on a whim that maybe we'll be saved one day, but to have full assurance because if Jesus died on the cross for you and if Jesus rose again on the third day and you are in him, you have full assurance of your salvation. It is not find, found outside of that. And in fact, when we talk about the the 
Protestant Reformation that took place. The reason why, one of the main catalysts for the Reformation just taking flames and people getting saved everywhere and recognizing all of the accretions from Rome, recognizing all of the things that they've added uh, to the scriptures, what we see over and over again, the most important one, was the assurance of the believer in their salvation. Because truth be told, if you are under the Roman system, you do not have assurance of your salvation. You could commit a mortal sin. Uh, you could not take partake of communion, and you could lose your salvation at all times. But for those who are in Christ, neither height nor depth, nor guess what, nor even death can take us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And one thing we never want to do with assurance is take the promises for the faithful, the called, the chosen, and the faithful, and apply them to those who are unfaithful. In fact, James 1, and 23 says this, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves or deceive themselves. For anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror and then he goes and forgets of it. And so what we want to do is make sure that we say, are we really a doer of the word? And as Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So we follow him, and wherever the shepherd goes, his sheep follow him. That's one of the, the promises uh, that we get in the book, in the Gospel of John, that God's sheep will hear his voice, and it says that they will listen and follow him. It doesn't say that at one point they listened, and at one point they followed, but they continued to listen and follow him. And when we look at not only what James had to say, but also when, we, when it comes to John, John's gospel is really interesting because it's almost like it has two endings when you really look at it. Because in the gospel of John, and you can turn there, in the gospel of John chapter 20, it's almost as if he wanted to bookend something, like he wanted to add something there. And I believe God gave him that because the Bible says, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that every single scripture, all of the graphe, all of the scripture is theonustos or theonustos, which is God breathed. And so I believe God moved on them, just as Peter will talk about, and we'll read that from 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. But before we get to there, I think it is important because we're going to see John, and one thing that when we read of the Apostle John, whom this very gospel talks about him, not by his name, but by the person he was, the disciple whom Jesus loved, what we're going to see in the gospel of John over and over again is that he wants to make something very clear to them. And one of the things I love about John is that he tells you why he writes his books. Sometimes we have to look, and it's part of what we call hermeneutics or the science of studying scripture is, hey, who is this to? Why was it written? You know, what is the immediate context? What's the cultural context? What's the context of the covenant? Which covenant is, is it in? And we really try to do that science so we rightly divide the word of truth so we know exactly what God is trying to say to us, and we're not asking ourselves, oh, what does this mean to me? Because that's not important. It's what does God mean through his word, and what is he trying to say? And so when we get to that principle of hermeneutics where we say, well, when the author tells us who he's writing to, it's important to listen. So in John's gospel, when he tells us why he is writing the book, I think it's important to listen. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says this, 
Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things have been written. Why have they been written? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So why was the Gospel of John written? So that you would be saved. The Gospel of John was written so that you would be saved. Now, 1 John, another letter by John, an epistle by John, a general epistle by John, he actually writes why he wrote that in chapter 5, verse 13. Not only the verse before does he, do we find out that life is found in the Son, but also in verse 13 he tells us that he wrote these things so that you may know you have eternal life. So when you're thinking, why were these two books written? John was written so that you can get saved. First John was written so that you, are, you know and have full assurance that you are saved. Please turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter is one of my favorite books, and I, I say that, I guess, whatever book we're talking about, but... Um, one of the reasons I love 2 Peter and also 2 Timothy is because in both of these books, we have, I believe, the living eulogies of these apostles. The apostle Paul giving his living eulogy in 2 Timothy, and then Peter giving his living eulogy as well in 2 Peter. Because Peter's going to say that you know, he's about to be poured out. He's about to die. That prophecy that Jesus gave concerning the fact that he would go and die. And he said, you know, basically Jesus told him, you know, when you, when you, when you were born, you kind of put on your clothes, you went wherever you want, but there's coming a time where they will take you and take you to a place you do not choose to go to. And it says that they were prophesying specifically about how he would ultimately perish. And so when we get to 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16, it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. When Peter is going to express to them and has already expressed to them just a few verses earlier in verse 10 that they need to make their calling and election sure, they need to know they're saved, he is piggybacking that on the fact that not only himself, but there were multiple eyewitnesses to Jesus. And not only were they eyewitnesses, but one of the beautiful things is he brings up something that is talked about too little, I believe, and that is the Mount of Transfiguration, what took place there. 
when Jesus took them up to the Mount of Transfiguration and they saw Moses and Elijah, as many people will point out that that would point to the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. And then ultimately, guess what? When God the Father spoke, he said, this is my son, listen to him. And you had Peter there, I believe, thinking that it was the time for Israel to be restored and for the Davidic, um, actually the Messiah coming in the nature of David as king to come at that moment. And he was performing and asking to build tents, I believe, to honor um, the, the Feast of Booths and thinking that this was the ushering in. It's right here. I mean, I guess if you're sitting there with Moses and Elijah being transfigured with Jesus there, and you go, well, this has got to be the end, right? I mean, what else? What else is there? This is pretty awesome. I mean, God the Father is literally speaking from a cloud. And yet Peter's entire point here, and what he's saying, starting at verse 16, is that even though he heard the, the voice of God speaking from the clouds, even though he heard that, he said, I have, we have a word more sure than that voice. And it's found in the scriptures. It's found in God's revealed word to us. That is why any sort of thing that is spoken to you in a dream, any sort of person telling you they heard something or prophesied something or anything, it's always can we find that with chapter and verse? Do we see that in the scriptures? Are we going to test the spirits to make sure they're in line with the word of God? Because if anything contradicts what this has already made clear, I jettison, I throw it out. I tell a quick story. When, I was, when Holly and I were first married, we, um, you know, at my parents' house and then also at her house, uh, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, typically once they visit once and they can't get, you know, they don't have all the answers, they typically don't visit again. And so they kind of write you off on their book. Oh, yeah, don't visit those guys. Uh, but we had just gotten married, and I still think this is the only time I've ever called out sick from uh, work. I was sick home, and so was Holly from work. And we were in our new house, newly married, and we had a knock on the door. And I was like, man, not only a lot of people even know we live here yet, you know, but let's see who this is. And I looked through the little thing, and I'm like, Mormons. I haven't got a chance to talk to Mormons in a while, you know. Sometimes I'd chase them down if, they were, if I was driving, but, you know, you get appointments, you can't do that as much. Just to talk, you know, obviously, but uh, I guess that could sound bad if I'm chasing people down in my car. But, um, but you know, so I go and, and, and I'm like, I, t I tell Holly, I'm like, hey, there's Mormons at the door, so uh, I'm going to talk to them. So I try to, like, wash my face up a little bit, act like I'm okay. And, you know, we started, we started sharing. I started sharing with them, and uh, Holly comes out after a little, starts sharing, and then she goes back in to puke and then comes back out uh, a little bit later. And we went through a number of things, why we don't trust the Book of Mormon. I, I, I had quoted to them uh, what 2 Nephi 25-23 says, and 2 Nephi 25-23 in the Book of Mormon says, you are saved by grace through faith after all you can do, and then expresses that it's by keeping the law of Moses, something that is not found in the scriptures. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 in the Bible, in God's holy word, make it very clear that we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God and not by works, lest any man should boast. So I so what we have is an inherent contradiction here. And so what we cannot do is leave this meeting with us together and decide that we can both go our separate ways and we're both holding on to truth. 
We can either both be wrong or one of us is wrong and one of us is right. We cannot both be right because it's a contradiction here. And I shared that with them. And then Holly came out and said, they said, you know, pretty much they didn't really have a, a lot of answers. And they said, listen, um, you know, it's just we have to take it on faith. And we, we, we had this prayer and we had this burning in the bosom at one point. Uh, they don't name it that anymore because plenty of uh, missionaries have expressed to them that that is just nonsense. But uh, they'll say, I felt like the Holy Spirit expressed to me this or that, that the Book of Mormon was true. And my wife uh, explained to them, hey, you know, I know someone uh, very close to me who was married. And um, while they were married, said, you know what? Uh, I think God wants me to get a divorce. He said, oh, okay. Um, in fact, I'm praying about it. I'm praying if God wants me to get a divorce. And uh, she said, oh, really? Well, has he, you know, stepped out of the bounds of marriage? Has he deserted you? How, like, what is the criteria here? Because what the Bible says, she said, I don't know, but I'm going to see if God will answer my prayer. And God answered that prayer. So she thought and said, yeah, you can get a divorce. It's totally fine, even though it was unbiblical. And Holly basically asked them, you know, well, do you think uh, she should have listened to that answered prayer that was on her heart? And they said, no. And she said, why? Well, because the Bible already says that you, you can't do that. It says exactly. So when the Book of Mormon says something along the lines of we are saved by all the works that we do, I don't need to pray that prayer. God has already spoken and made it clear this is wrong. And so that's one of the things we have to do and recognize. What has God already revealed in his word? When God says it, that's it. God says it. And we test everything else, every feeling, every inclination. We test everything with what the word of God says. And one of the beautiful things about assurance is that it comes alongside proofs that God gives us over and over again. And what I love is not only seeing that Peter, but also John, point to the fact that they were both eyewitnesses. In fact, 1 John 5.13, as we talked about, it's almost the culmination of the letter. Now, he ends it kind of abruptly, but I've always loved the abruptness of 1 John, how it ends. Children, keep yourselves from idols. It's just like so clear. And it's like, wow. In fact, um, Jerome tells us in church history that when John, the apostle, died, and he's uh, the only apostle that died at an old age, and when he died, uh, he says that, according to church history, that he was just saying, my children love one another, love one another. And he said, he kept saying, children love one another. And then when he died, he basically said, it's been accomplished. You love one another. But when he finishes 1 John, he says, keep yourself from idols warning about the idolatry that can come in. In fact, we talk a lot about different sins that may come into somebody's life, uh, things that, that, you know, whether it's sexual sin that may come and try to ravage a household and a family, whether it's pornography and things like that. Jesus made it very clear. If you look at a woman with lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. We talk about lying and stealing and, and the kind of wickedness. But idolatry just over and over again is what is warned about more than anything in Scripture. In fact, it is the breaking of the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. It is so important for us to recognize that. So I totally understand John ending it there. But it's how John starts his letter, which is very similar to the point that Peter just made. He said, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, 
what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And then he's going to attach something there. What we have seen, touched, heard. Now this is important. This is really important because there's a doctrinal issue that is really important that he is addressing in the early church. A lot of people, uh, when you look at church history, for the first almost 300 years until the Edict of Milan in 313, you have almost 300 years, over 270, over 270 years of waves of persecution on the church. When the church starts there, I believe it started prior to Pentecost when Jesus gave the first communion, but when the church starts there and the promise that Jesus said that would happen, that you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then into Judea and then to the outermost parts of the world, and it goes out, well, guess what? It was waves of persecution, and a lot of people thought, wow, this will be the thing that stamps them out. We'll just kill them off, and that'll be done. It'll be really easy whether it's Nero or Diocletian or some of the, the emperors of Rome, we'll just stamp them out. And that's why Tertullian in the third century wrote how foolish it is that you think you can stamp out Christianity by killing us. He says, what you do not realize is the blood of the Christians is the seed of the church. It is through persecution over and over again. When you look at church history, it has always been through persecution that the church has always grown to its greatest height, true height, of following and loving and following the Lamb wherever he goes. That has always been found through persecution. It is when there has been prosperity that there has been a major issue. And that's exactly what took place over and over again, this prosperity. But not only was that a terrible thing, and, and obviously it's horrible to see our Christian brothers and sisters, we even read some of the books of the things that were going on in history, it's horrible, but guess what? The church was exactly as the Bible says, the bride making herself ready over and over as we're supposed to be doing right now, making ourselves ready for our bridegroom. But yet when you look at that and you see that, some of the biggest dangers that actually happened were philosophical or doctrinal that came in. Lies that tried to, as Jude puts it, creep in unnoticed, who trade the grace of our God for a license of immorality. And so when you actually look at this, one of the things that John is combating is the fact that there were plenty of people that did not believe that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. And he is trying to start his gospel, or this, this letter here in 1 John by presenting the fact that these are not just wives' tales. These are not just sayings. These are not just things that we heard that, oh, that'd be really cool if they did that and it'd be awesome we have this philosophy. He's like, no. We saw with our eyes, we looked at, we heard him with our ears, we touched him with our own hands. This message that Jesus gave is not something that's just been passed down and hopefully I figured it out along the way. No, I saw this. Peter, when he says that we have a word more sure, I heard from the Father in heaven. I saw Jesus as he was majestic on the mountain. I saw these things with my own eyes. I touched Jesus with my own hands. I put my head in his chest. I loved him. And he's saying, guess what? When he's going to clarify something, in verse five he says, this is the message we heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him 
There is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When he is going to attach the importance of this message, he's expressing, I heard this straight from Jesus. And so just as Peter is saying, you need to make your calling and election sure, and by the way, we were eyewitnesses, John is saying, you need to know that you are saved. He starts it with the fact that his eyes had seen, his hands had touched, he was there. These aren't wives' tales. These aren't just cool stories, right? You look in history and all these different religions, so much of what is written about characters are from people hundreds and hundreds of years away from them. Siddhartha Buddha, we have no idea. Hundreds and hundreds of years before anything is written about the Buddha, and guess what? The guy, even when they write about him, he starts out his journey into nirvana, when you read the Bhagavad Gita, to go search for enlightenment by looking at his wife who had just given birth to his son and then takes off. By the way, I take no advice from deadbeat fathers. Like, I do not care what you have to say to me when you are a deadbeat father who can walk away from your child and your wife who had just given birth. I don't care what Siddhartha Buddha has to say right? But with Jesus, they're like, no, we found nothing, that he never spoke ill, he never sinned, he was perfect. So many people want to hear of testimonies of those who come out of Islam into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They said, I looked at the life of Muhammad, and I looked at the life of Jesus. When I looked at Muhammad, he started dating a six-year-old and married her when she was eight or nine, depending upon if you're reading uh, Sahih al-Bukhari or Sahih Islam. Right? When I look at him he, with the murderous rampages, right? when I look at Joseph Smith having all these visions where he is having people uh, div- divorce their wives so that he can marry them, when I look at their lives, they have nothing to offer me, objectively, morally inept, over and over again. But when I look at the life of Jesus, it is entirely different. And what we hear and what we see from these very apostles, and by the way, This is the linchpin of the resurrection. These same apostles, when we see over and over again with Jesus in his lifetime, him expressing to them, they were walking with him. In fact, when giant crowds would come, he'd give his harshest messages. And then guess what? When they would come to him, when they would be with him, he would express truth to them. And these very apostles, his best friends, his disciples who walked right next to him, would be the same ones who would betray him when he would go to die. But something radical happened over a three-day period. When Jesus resurrected, the same ones who ran away, in fact, the apostle Peter, who was willing to cut off the ear of Malthus, then when a little girl asked him, don't you know the Nazarene? He starts cussing it up to make sure they know. You, nobody who speaks that way knows Jesus, right? And so that's the kind of thing that all of a sudden that was happening. You have these men and by the way, I think about this too, because people, you know, we, we obviously think of Jesus, meek and mild, they'll talk about him that way, but he's not just the Lamb of God, he's coming, uh, the wrath of the Lamb's coming as well, okay? My, you read the book of Revelation, you want to see Jesus, right? Eyes like a flame of fire, voice like the sound of many waters, feet like burnished bronze, that's my Jesus, right? He is coming back, right, to wield that sort of truth in his mouth, that's my Jesus, But we also think of his disciples and people think, oh yeah, they were probably these nice little gentle guys. Guys, fishermen's job, 
I, I think about this uh, because I've always been a baseball fan. And Mariano Rivera was probably the best closer of all time, if you like baseball. And Mariano Rivera, he came from uh, the city of Panama. And uh, one of the things about him, he tried to start out as a starting pitcher. And when he was a starting pitcher, he was just mediocre. He was, he was just okay. But then when they moved him to the bullpen and then just basically decided he was only going to throw really one pitch, he became literally the greatest closer of all time. And the one pitch he threw was a cutter. And uh, literally one of the teams, when he was retiring, they, uh, they gave him a rocking chair made up of broken baseball bats. Uh, because when he would, when left-handed batters, because he was a right-handed pitcher, so the ball would cut in, when left-handed batters would go to hit, that ball would come in and it would break their bats, I mean, all the time, because he was throwing it so hard and it was moving so much. And they were like, well, how does he throw this pitch? It's very different than other people. And it was literally because of how he gripped the ball. And it wasn't because he had it in a certain hold. It was because they said his grip strength, he could break your hand by squeezing it. And then when they showed why, why he was like this, uh, in a documentary, he showed them it was from taking, making nets like this all day. If you guys remember Robert Severn, he was a uh, just blessed brother here in Christ, and he was a welder. And if you guys remember his grip strength, man, it was always incredible that that guy was like 60 and could break your hand by squeezing it, right? Because of the job he was doing every day. And it was interesting to me because I think about that when I think of Peter and James and John and Andrew, you know, and you think about these, these fishermen, these are rugged dudes, they're no joke, but yet they were the ones running away. They were the ones fleeing when people were like, don't you, don't you know Jesus, the, the Nazarene? No, I don't know that guy. I got to get out of here. But then they were also the same ones. We can look at that and say, I can't believe they would do that. But they were also the same ones that came back after the resurrection. They were the, also the same ones that as Jesus promised, and then now we get the same promise, that the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. And they were also the same ones who, although they were the disciples, the ones who were learning from Jesus, would become the apostles, the sent out ones. And they would go out and proclaim that gospel with boldness. And the thing that changed them was the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And they were eyewitnesses, not only to his glory and majesty, but they were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And that gospel that was proclaimed in Jerusalem and Judea has come to the outermost parts of the world so that we are sitting in America 2,000 years later speaking in English about a Jewish man who died 2,000 years ago. But it matters because he rose again. And guess what? His church militant was not church militant because they went out and began killing people. It was because the message of the gospel was the deutimus, the power of gospel to salvation so that people were getting saved. And then even over the course of history, when people would put blinders over it and not let the Bible be written, it was that lion that would be let out of its cage over and over again. And as we just recently did celebrate the, Re the Reformation, it would be shown very clearly that we can have assurance that we are in Christ because he died for us. And that changes everything. And the Gospel of John, him being an eyewitness, as he says in 1 John, is interesting because a lot of people want to know who these books are written to. 
And so if you know anything uh, about uh, hermeneutics and the, the study of the science of studying Scripture, the Gospel of John is one that people say, well, who is the Gospel of John really written to? Now, we've already read in John chapter 20, 30 and 31, that it's clear that the Gospel of John was written for, for people to come to Christ. But they also say, well, there's some interesting things here. Because when the Gospel of John is written, it seems like he expresses some very Jewish things. Like, uh, specifically, all of the Jewish scriptures that he quotes to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. All of the things that are fulfilled. They're like, well, obviously he's writing to a Jewish audience. But there are also times, and I'll give you an example, that he's clearly writing to Gentiles. In fact, when you think of uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, when Jesus goes and speaks to her, notice the commentary that the Apostle John gives is that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, if I'm a Jew and I have no dealings with Samaritans, I probably know that. So there's no reason for him to put that there unless he's also writing to a Gentile audience. And what is also interesting is that unlike Luke, who made his gospel, as he says, I wrote these things in consecutive order, in chronological order. So you know the order of things that Luke wrote. John's gospel is not this way. But John's gospel is broken up into two things. The statements, or what we call the I am statements, the seven I am statements, and the seven signs of Jesus as the Messiah. And now why would he do that? Well, a lot of people would point to the fact that when it came to the Greek culture that they would be trying to witness to, that they would try to reach them by the things that were said and the philosophy of Jesus. Whereas trying to reach the Jewish people, they needed to have the things that he did. As Jesus even said, if you do not believe me, believe my miracles. In fact, when I listened to uh, a couple of different Jewish guys talk about why they don't believe in Messiah and so forth and the differences between Christianity and Judaism, one of the things they mentioned specifically was the fact that, well, when it comes to Christians, it's all about the heart change, where for us, it's more of an outward service. Now, for Christians that are here, I'm sure you would disagree and say that it's actually the outward service that happens because of the inward change. Amen? That's exactly right. And in fact, we are saved by grace through faith, right? We are saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. When somebody is saved in Christ and they have the fruit of being a believer, the fruit that they bear is not only the obedience of Christ, but the fruits of the Spirit that are within them. So obviously that's incorrect, an incorrect look at it. But this is being all things to all people, as Paul talked about, is making sure that, and this is how John wrote it, I want everyone to know the gospel. Whether you're of the, the Greek culture and you want to know that Jesus is the best philosopher, I'm going to show you that too. That he has the best sayings, I'm going to show you that too. Or whether you're a Jewish person who needs to know that he has fulfilled these promises. The seven I am statements in the gospel of John are, I am the bread of life, found in John 6, 35, 41, 48, and 51. I am the light of the world, found in John 8, 12, and 9, 5. I am the door, found in John 10, 7, and 10, 9. I am the good shepherd, found in John 10, 11, and 14. I am the resurrection and the life, found in John eleven twenty five. 25. I am the way, the truth, and the life, found in John 14, 6. And I am the true vine, found in John 15. Now, that is, those are not the only I am statements, actually. But those are the I, only I am metaphorical statements of John. 
because he also proclaims exactly who he is in John the 8th chapter, as well as when the soldiers come to get him. Because the way that Jesus describes himself is the same way that Yahweh in the Old, text, uh, in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus chapter 3 describes himself. And what we have here is the Greek rendering in the New Testament. The Greek rendering is ego imi. And what that means is I am. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is the same thing stated, not only in Exodus 3, but throughout the book of Isaiah, when God was proclaiming that he is the only God over and over again, he was making the same statement that Jesus made. This isn't metaphorical anymore, that he is the true vine, that he is the resurrection and the life, but this is a literal understanding of his name, of who he is as the one true God. In John 8, 24 and John 8, 58, both of them say this, uh, Jesus says, in John 8, 58, because they're saying, how could you say all this? You were not born before Abraham. You're not greater than Abraham, are you? And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Ego Amy. And actually, uh, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Abraham himself knew of the resurrection. He knew it, and he saw it and was glad. He knew that the picture of his son going there on Mount Moriah was a picture of what would actually take place when Jesus Christ came and paid for the sins of the world. So he understood the resurrection, that his son could even be brought back to life because God has already made a promise to Abraham. He wasn't going to take his son and thinking God was just going to kill him and nothing was going to happen, but he was going to take his son, but knew that something was going to take place. Something radical could take place because he knew God had already promised something. And when God has made a promise, he knew he wasn't going to go back on it. And so guess what? Abraham knew, and Jesus says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, expressing to them, I am greater than the Abraham you've been reading about. I am greater than him because I existed prior to him. And in John 8, 24, he actually makes it very clear. If you do not believe that he is Yahweh, if you do not believe that he is the great I am, you will die in your sins. And this is very important to us. We need to recognize this. Throughout the entire New Testament, over and over again, the authors would take things from the Old Testament and apply them to Jesus that were only to Yahweh. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, when it expresses the gospel, it says that you must believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And it says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Even the Jehovah's Witness cult, they forgot to mess up their translation more than it's already messed up. In Romans chapter 10, it actually calls Jesus, even in their uh, just disgusting translation that's not a translation, it's just trying to put their doctrine into it. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, it actually calls Jesus Yahweh there. And they can't get around it. But the truth is, is that you need to believe that he is. And you need to believe that he is the one true God because as Acts 20, 28 says, it, God purchased the church with his own blood. And just as Thomas, who was doubting that Jesus had resurrected, did not believe it, and he said, I will not believe it unless I touch his wounds, unless I see that it's truly Jesus and touch him, I will not believe it. And when he touched the wounds of Jesus, he said, the Lord of me and the God of me. 
because he realized that this Jesus that died was the God of the Old Testament, the promises that they have read about, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, as John writes about in the first chapter. And when we look through the Gospel of John, we see not only the sayings, but also we see the signs. And a lot of people can look at the Gospel of John and you can say, well, there's more, uh, there's more miracles than seven. Yes, there's more miracles, but these are the signs that John talks about. And there are seven signs, just as there are seven sayings, there are seven signs. The first one that takes place is in John chapter two, the turning of water into wine. The second one is the healing of the official's son. The third one is the healing of the crippled man. The fourth one is the feeding of the 5,000. The fifth one is walking on water the sixth is the healing of the blind man. And the seventh is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And when we actually look at John's gospel and how he has ordered it this way, it is a powerful reminder of who God is and that Jesus is Yahweh. And over and over again, when we see him displaying this through his miracles and through his statements, he makes it so abundantly clear so that we can know we have eternal life. So the same John that says he wants you to know you have eternal life, the same John that says I wrote these things that you may have eternal life, witnessing and then, and then giving that blessed assurance to us that Jesus is mine, all of those things are accompanied with these miracles, with these sayings, with these promises of God over and over again. And I want to go over John's gospel and just... It's, you know, everyone has their seven sayings, as I said, the seven sayings or the seven signs. Uh, the signs would not just be miracles, but things that were done in front of a crowd, including uh, one of the ones that are, are, is my favorite is when you look at John 5 and 6 and you do see the feeding of the 5,000, you have Jesus, um, what, what would normally be against um, some, some of our laws and uh, the laws of thermodynamics. He was creating matter because he fed the 5,000. Only God can do that. Only God can create or destroy matter, ultimately. And you have Jesus feeding the 5,000 by doing this before many witnesses. That's the important thing of these signs. But I want to look at, and I'll try to be as fast as I can on this, but I want to look at every chapter how John presents Jesus. And these aren't from a commentary. These are just my own personal commentary. But um, I'm going to go through them, and I'll try to list some of the verses as well. In John chapter 1, he is clearly God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, that is actually the thesis of the entire gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he proclaims very clearly that that Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. John the Baptist also cries out as a voice crying out into the wilderness, make way the paths of Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament. And as Nathaniel says in John 1, 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus is not only God, he is the King of Israel. In John chapter 2, he is the very temple that was to be destroyed. And in fact, what is interesting is if you ask uh, somebody who denies the divinity of Christ, who rose Jesus from the dead? Because as it says in Romans chapter 10, it also says in Romans chapter 8, um, not only the Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the dead, but the Father rose Jesus from the dead. And they would say, Jehovah rose Jesus from the dead. But Jesus says very clearly in John 2, uh, verses 18 through 22, it says, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us your authority for doing these things? Remember, the Jews were looking for signs. Said Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken to them. I love that. Because you look at it and you see very clearly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the dead. Yahweh rose Jesus from the dead. In John chapter 3, he is the bronze serpent, just as it talks about in the book of Numbers, that is lifted up to bring healing. He is not only that, but John 3.16 as being the most popular verse in all of the Bible. He is the one that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In John chapter 4, he expresses to the woman at the well in verse 13 to 14, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Speaking of the water there at Jacob's well, he said, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. In John chapter 5, he is the one whom all of the scriptures testify. He tells them in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Just as those in Proverbs 1 who are unwilling to listen to the voice, who are unwilling to go to the one who is screaming from the rooftops at the city gate, all who are naive come to me. Just as he is crying that out, he is saying, who are those who do not come to him? It's not because he doesn't want them. He gave his only begotten son to die for them. Is because they are unwilling to come to them. They'll do any other thing. In fact, in John chapter 3, as just to revert back a little bit, if you remember when Nicodemus comes to him, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and remember, Jesus is doing these miracles, and Nicodemus says, we know you're from God. So even the Pharisees that were denying him were not doing it because they didn't have some knowledge that God was unwilling to give them. They were unwilling to come to him that they may have life. They were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as it says in Romans chapter 1. In John chapter 6, he is the one who speaks the very words which are spirit and life. And the manna from heaven that was offered, he is that very manna that was offered in the book of Exodus. God bless you. He is that manna. And not only is he that manna that was offered, when so many reject him and he looks at Peter, and he says, will you leave too? He says, well, where shall I go? For you have the words of eternal life. The same words that he says in John chapter 15, those same words that he tells his disciples, you have already been made clean by the words that you have heard. It is his words that make us clean. In John chapter 7, Jesus is the promised Messiah, performing the miracles that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, was to perform. And he would promise them also that the Spirit would come to them. He'll promise them that again, John 14 through 16. In John chapter 8, as mentioned earlier, Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament. In John chapter 9, Jesus is the Son of Man, promised by Daniel the prophet in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, during the Babylonian captivity, Daniel writes this, 
I kept looking in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. Jesus said in John 9, 35-37, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord? that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have both seen him and he is the one that is talking to you. He makes it clear he is the promised son of man that Daniel mentioned in Daniel chapter seven. In John chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd. The same shepherd, because he's already proved he's Yahweh. The same shepherd in Psalm 23 that leads us beside still waters. He is that same shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. In John chapter 11, he proves very clearly, not only by doing, but by saying that he is the resurrection and the life. And he is also prophesied, even them, he is prophesied by Caiaphas. It says this in John chapter 11. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, as in the high priest there, Caiaphas, was given these words. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so that from that day on they planned together to kill them, kill him. They wanted to kill Jesus because he was prophesied by their own high priest. In John chapter 12, Jesus is the king of Israel riding on a donkey. My favorite animal, by the way. It's the coolest animal. My wife was like, what's wrong with you? I love donkeys. They even have a cross on the back if you ever look at them. Anyways, um, he is not only the king of Israel riding on a donkey, but in John chapter 12, and I don't have enough time to, to ferret all this out for you guys, but in John chapter 12, it says this in 1241, and it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, but he says, uh, earlier he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, he says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who did he speak of? In, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, who did Isaiah speak of? He's not talking about Isaiah 53 when he was going to be the Messiah. He's talking about in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I saw Yahweh sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In John chapter 13, Jesus is the teacher and Lord who washes the feet of his disciples. John 13, starting at verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You should love one another. In John 14, one of the top um, most memorized verses as well, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Not only the sayings, But the miracles of Jesus are proving this to be true throughout the gospel of John, the eyewitness who saw and heard all these things. In John chapter 15, he is the true vine. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And then in John chapter 15, verse five, not only do we learn that, but we also recognize that apart from him, we can do nothing apart from Jesus. 
In John chapter 16, he is a pre-existing one, as it says in John 16, 28, I came forth from my Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. He also performs the duty of Israel's high priest as he would go just in the ancient times of Israel and be the intercessor of prayer for the sins of Israel In John 17, Jesus performs the high priestly prayer and his resurrection is the acceptance of the sacrifice that was given. We can know that it was accepted because he resurrected. In John 18, he is the one who is betrayed by his own disciple, the one who sat and ate with him. Psalm 41.9 states, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. He's the one who, even though betrayed, offered, offered communion even to Judas. In John chapter 19, he is the one not only who dies in John chapter 19, but cries out my favorite word in all of the Greek language, tetelestai. It's an accounting term. When somebody had a debt that they needed paid, Once it was paid, it was stamped on that debt. Paid in full, or as sometimes it would be translated, it is finished. Because all of our sins have been bought and paid for at the cross. Because as we pray, when we pray what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is really our prayer, He never had to pray for forgiveness of sins because He never sinned. So when Jesus teaches us to pray, and I love that His disciples didn't ask how to fundraise, His disciples didn't ask how to build these things or that. He said, teach us to pray, Lord. And when he taught them to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which my boys right here, we pray this every night before bed. But forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or a better translation is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that is the only commentary that Jesus gives on the Lord's Prayer because what he says regarding that portion of the prayer, if you do not forgive, you also will not be forgiven. But Jesus Christ himself, to Tetelestai, paid for our sins in full. You see, because each and every one of us have a sin debt. Every single one of us. Every time you sinned against God, it accrued debt. It doesn't matter how small you think that sin is. It doesn't matter your opinion. He is a good and righteous judge. And so every single time that you lied or stole or put something before you or before God and said, oh, this is more important than God and push him to the side. Every time you did that, you've committed sin against God. Those are crimes against your creator. You have broken his law and accrued a debt. You see, when somebody, all right, is given their wages, right? When somebody goes to work and then is paid, it's not like, oh, thank you so much for paying me after I did all that work. Plus, trust me, I used to do some construction and, and it was terrible when you didn't get paid. You were like, but I earned this, you know, like, you should probably stop getting jobs with people who are using a lot of drugs. But, you know, uh, you know I, I'm, like, I'm like, man, I earned those wages. That's exactly how the Bible describes your sin. You see, when you get judgment for your sin, it is not because God's a meanie. It is because you have earned those wages. There is a debt that is owed for every single sin you've ever committed. And when he said to Telestai, he said they have been paid in full. 
And what that means is he has accomplished it. And so then, if I put on the Lord Jesus Christ, as the New Testament would describe or prescribe for me, if I put on the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of judgment, that double-edged sword that we talked about at the very beginning, where we are going to be with him in glory forever and ever, and there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, that's awesome for us. If I put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't see me and every sin that I've committed. He sees his son. It's been to tell us die, bought and paid for, paid in full. But if I do not have that, all I'm getting, it's not some meanie thing where God's just being mean to someone. You are simply getting your wages. That's all. Whenever someone wants to know what hell is and, and they try to make a caricature of it this way or that way, it is simply getting exactly what you deserve. That's exactly what it is. You have earned wages. But God doesn't just leave it there. He's a perfect judge. So he has to judge sin. He has to judge sin. And that brings me to John 20. In John chapter 20, he is our propitiation. How so? Propitiation is an interesting word that is used in the New Testament, both in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, and in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 might be the most popular usage of it. He's the propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. But that word is really interesting. And in fact, Martin Luther pointed this out as well, because he liked to read the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he noticed that the same word that is used in 1 John 2, 2, and specifically for him, was in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, is the word that is used for the mercy seat found in Exodus 25. So how is Jesus, in John chapter 20, that very mercy seat? Well, it's really interesting. Because it says in John 20, verse 11 through 12, but Mary, after his resurrection, was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting at one head and on one feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. If you guys remember the Ark of the Covenant, when you looked at the mercy seat where the sacrifice for Israel would have been laid, the blood would have been sprinkled. There were angels at the head and the feet. Jesus is our propitiation in that Jesus is the very mercy seat that all these years was going on in the temple, all these years of, of the sin being covered by the blood of lambs and of bulls and so forth, as uh, the author of Hebrew talks about, this accepted propitiation is a picture for us, and John is making it clear that he is that mercy seat where it was sprinkled. And then in John chapter 21, Not only is he clearly the resurrected king who shows himself, but he is the reconciler. Reconciling Peter, who had denied him three times. Reconciling Peter, who had deserted him. And what I think is beautiful is that both John and Peter, who speak to their eyewitnesses to not only clarify, but to point out the fact that they're, what they're saying is true, that both of them want you to know about assurance of salvation. And that story I read from you at the beginning uh, was about a young man by the name of John Wesley, who was younger than me when he was traveling across with those Moravians who were not fearing death. They had no fear of death, and it, and it really bothered him. 
It's like, man, these guys are different. I'm preaching all this. I know all these doctrines. Why, why do they have no fear of death? In 1736, think about how long that was before the United States was even a nation. He's out here witnessing. And then, just a little, a little under two and a half years later, the assurance came to him. On May 24th, 1738, he went to another Moravian meeting, actually. He said, it came somewhat unexpectedly. It would appear at 8.45 on the evening of 24th of May, 1738, at a meeting in London of which he has left a definite record in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change that God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away from my, my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley, on that night, some say that was his night of salvation. Some um, Wesleyan scholars argue that that was the night of assurance for him. In either way, the fruit of his ministry really started on that day when he had full assurance that Jesus Christ had died even for his sins. And it's interesting because he has started the Methodist movement. Uh, the, church, the Methodist church today, except for some of the confessional Methodists, are pretty apostate. But um, the amount of people that got saved through uh, the Methodist movement are, is ra a radical number. And in fact, uh, just recently I sent this to uh, a brother in Christ because it, it was on October 27th. On this day in history, Francis Asbury sent from England by John Wesley. Remember, John Wesley was the one who originally was sent from England, but now he is sending someone else. Francis Asbury was sent from England by John Wesley to oversee America's 600 or so Methodist uh, lands in Philadelphia. And during that 45-year ministry that Asbury uh, would be a part of in America, he traveled on horseback or in carriage and an estimated 300,000 miles and delivered some 16,500 sermons. And by his death, there were over 200,000 Methodists in America. That assurance brought about some fruit, amen? And if you remember, um, I had mentioned earlier that it was them singing when the fear of death was right, should be before them, and even the women and children know I have nothing to fear in death because I have my king. I know my savior. I know he's resurrected. I have no reason to fear death. And he didn't have that. But I remember reading this as a very young believer. Um, when Holly and I were first going out, sometimes I'd head over to Joe and Lisa's house before she got there and we'd hang out. And one time I got there and no one was there. And I was like, oh, I'll go borrow one of Joe's books. And so um, I, I grabbed and I just gravitated over to... Um, John Wesley's journal, and it stuck with me, and it was something that I was like, I want to make sure I don't have the fear of death. I'm not saying those things don't come, you know, sometimes. The Bible even tells us that we need to have mercy on those who are doubting, saving them from the fire. I'm not saying doubts don't come, but it's something to always make sure we're bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, so that when those doubts come, we make them captive to the obedience of Christ. But I remember reading this. This is 1791, February 24th. This is somebody having to write for him because in his journal he was already getting ready to pass. And this is John Wesley. Um, this is his journal. It says, The next awful scene was the great exertion he made in order to make Mr. B understand that he fervently desired a sermon he had written on the love of God 
to be scattered abroad and given away to everybody. Something else he wished to say, but alas, his speech failed him. And those lips which used to feed many were no longer able, except when particular strength was given to him, to convey their accustomed sounds. A little after, Mr. Horton coming in, we hoped that if he had anything of moment in his mind which he wished to communicate, he would try to tell us that it was, and that either Mr. Horton or some of those who were most used to hear our dear father's dying voice would be able to interpret his meaning. But through, he strove to speak. We were still unsuccessful. Finding we could not understand what he said, he paused a little, and then with all remaining strength he had, he cried out, Best of all is, God is with us. And then, as if to assert the faithfulness of our promise-keeping Jehovah and comfort the hearts of weeping friends, lifting up his dying arm in a token of victory and raising his feeble voice with a holy triumph not to be expressed again, repeated the heart-reviving words, the best of all of us, God is with us. And his last words were, I'll praise, I'll praise as we get ready to partake of communion, um, please have you guys stand. And I love that because he got to see full, it come full circle, that, that frightening look, right? And, so, and think about it too, with John Wesley, you think about him wondering and having these doubts of whatever was going through his mind, and he had such a rigid form of, of religiosity, you know, with the Holy Club and so forth. And as I said, people argue whether or not he was saved um, before that or after. But all we know is that when it came to his ministry and how many people would eventually come to know the Lord through his ministry, it did not happen until that assurance was fully given to him. And to have a life that when at the cusp of it, in the middle of an ocean, wondering why someone could be worshiping while they're worried about death. And then when his life was ultimately culminating and coming to an end, I will praise, I will praise. How good our God is, amen? And I know we're going to take communion, and communion, I, I, I think it's important um, to express what it is every time we do it. It's a good reminder, and I believe that every... Um, Every service gets to culminate on this. We get to culminate and finish on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as we look at what God has given us in the communion. As we partake of the bread and the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, I want to make sure I had it down here. I really want you guys to think about this. You know, one thing um, for those who are in the high school, middle school youth group, and one thing in our, in our young adult group as well, something I try to bring out a lot is this is a great time to be obedient to when the scriptures tell us to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. I think it's important because not only should we examine ourselves that we are in the faith, but it's also a great time to reassess where you're at in your walk with Christ. What this, and we do this every single week as we come together on the Lord's day. We, 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 we hold this up and we remember what Jesus Christ did for us. And we also, and, and, you know, Lord, please help me to always remember to give that warning that nobody should be partaking of this unless you're in Christ. Um, the Bible is very clear. You become sick and even die by partaking of it without a right, a, a right heart and a right standing with Christ. That's not to bring condemnation to you. 
That's simply to say this is because we are looking at this and knowing that what he said to Telestai was paid in full. That when he said that, he meant it. It was true. All of the sayings, all of the signs, all of those things that that John saw with his own eyes, that Peter heard the voice of God, all of it is true. The resurrection is true. And the sacrifice was accepted beyond a shadow of a doubt. We don't have to worry about it. And we can have full assurance of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 